in this fourth week of our five-week series on Isaiah. And as Ed was saying, some parts of Isaiah are hard to understand. It's hard to figure out who's speaking. I'm pleased to let you know this morning, this is not a complicated chapter. Isaiah chapter 58. Uh, God is speaking, and it's pretty clear what he's saying. So we're just going to dig in. I'm just going to start by reading the first 12 verses of Isaiah chapter 58. Um, and I put the whole section in your bulletin if you want to follow along and make some notes. Um, or you can, you know, open your own Bibles and read along with me or it'll also be up, up on the screen. Uh, listen to God's word, both to his nation Israel, but also to his people today. This is what God says in Isaiah 58, starting with verse one. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. God has something to say, and he's not messing around. I love how he starts. It reminds me of when my kids were little. When I raised my voice like a trumpet and shouted it aloud and did not hold back, they knew I had something to say. They tended to pay attention. This is how God starts. For day after day, they, and he's talking about, again, his people, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have you, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it, talking to God? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? I love it when God is sarcastic, especially when it's not pointed at me. Um, but I think, I mean, that's how he's talking here. He has a sarcastic tone in his voice, you know? He continues. Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. Sounds like my family going to church on a Sunday morning when my kids were teenagers. Uh, God continues and says, you cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? He's saying, do you think I'm looking for just personal martyr-like behavior? You think that is what I want? He says, is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So he's calling out here in his people, self-centered religious activity, and saying to his people, to whom he loves, you wonder where I am? When this is your behavior, you fast, you worship, you do outward religious things, and yet you treat your workers, your neighbors like cattle. He's saying to them, do you think that giving me one day of pretend religion is somehow going to buy my attention? And then he switches. You'll notice this in verse six. And what God starts to do here is explain the kind of behavior that pleases him. And I want you to notice two things as I read this section. First of all, almost everything he says, if not everything, has to do with how the Israelites and how God's people today treat their neighbors. 
And the second thing I want you to notice is that this moves into kind of an if then sometimes the language is very clear. You'll see the word if and the word then, but that's that that's kind of the underlying idea. If you do this, then I will do this, says God. Pay attention to those things. He says this, verse six, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? God's saying, if you live that way, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the, glo- and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. He's really trying to get them to understand that the well-being of your neighbor has to do directly with the well-being of your own soul in relationship to God. Then you will call, he says, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. And the if then continues, if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, just turn on the television or radio in our country right now. That's all you hear, pointing finger and malicious talk. And if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You, again, he's speaking to his people. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. He's saying to his people, if You treat your neighbor, especially your hungry and naked and homeless and oppressed neighbor with compassion and love and justice. Then you will be fulfilling your call as a nation in ways you can't even understand. God is saying to his people, you will be putting your own self back together. Remember, his nation was broken into two by civil war. So here's basically what we see in this section of Isaiah 58. God's people thought they were doing the right kind of religious behavior. All the while, they were missing what God was really after. They were doing outward shows of religious righteousness, and they were missing the heart of God's call to them. While they were focused on one thing, they were missing the point. And it reminds me of an experience I had a month or so ago. I was called for jury duty. You know when you get that piece of paper in the mail and you know what it means, right? And it was for a double murder case that had happened 32 years ago near Newton. I don't know if some of you saw it in the paper. It was kind of a big, big case that happened in Blackhawk County. So 75 of us had to report... And then they take the first 36 randomly selected people and they kind of move those up front and they start to go through and see how many of you could stay for a three-week trial. I mean, who has conflicts? And they send people home and they keep adding new people in from this pool of 75 until they eventually have their final, semi-final pool of 36. And then the lawyers start to question 
the potential jurors and try to get down to 14, 12 jurors and two alternates. I was two people away. I was number 57, two people away from having to go into that semifinal pool, which meant I had to stay in the courtroom for two whole days while the lawyers questioned the jurors. But I never got pulled up into that semifinal pool. I got to watch human behavior for two entire days and I got paid 60 bucks. We live in a great country. And here's what I noticed. I mean, I'm stuck there, so I'm, you know, I'm trying to make this interesting. Here's what I noticed. After we had all grumbled together about how much we didn't want to be on jury duty, once people got thrown into that pool of 36, it was almost as if now they were trying to get picked. It's as if they started to think in their own heads, if I'm a real winner, I'm going to get picked for this jury. It was the weirdest thing that happened. And so the lawyers start to question the, ju- the potential jurors, ask them all kinds of interesting questions about how they organized their closets and about whether they were reasonable. And it was so interesting to watch people because it seemed like about 90% of the people were trying to say what they thought the lawyers wanted them to say. So, for instance, one of the questions, one of the lawyers said, I see, Tom, that you are a very reasonable man, and I'd imagine you always make really good, sound, reasonable decisions. And Tom is like, I do. I do. That is me. I'm constantly reasonable. I make the best decisions. It was fascinating. And then one lawyer said, now studies show that most human beings, after they hear one side of an argument, like 90% of human beings, they hear one side of the argument, they almost always decide in their mind what their opinion is. Do you, Becky, do you think you would be able to wait to hear both sides of an argument before you make your decision? So he's asking her, are you like a statistical outlier? Are you like 10%? Are you like the most amazing human being? And she's like, yes, yes, I am. I would defy the odds. I am the amazing kind of person who never makes a snap judgment. I mean, it's just fascinating to watch. And I'm not saying I would have done any differently had I been up there. I would have been doing all that stuff too. But here's what's fascinating. Not one of the people who answered in the ways they thought the lawyers wanted them to answer got picked. All those sassy people who were like, yes, I would be the most reasonable, struck. They got kicked out. It was amazing. They got sent home. Now, don't use this as a way to get out of serving jury duty. That's not why I'm sharing this story. But it was actually the people who didn't say anything or the people who were actually super honest about themselves who said yeah, sometimes I don't make the best decisions. Or, yeah, I probably would rush to judgment, just like 90% of other people. Or one guy, one guy was so honest, the lawyer asked him a question, and he goes, I'm sorry, what? (laughs) He goes, you know, sometimes I don't even pay attention to what's happening around me, so I don't know what you just asked me. He got picked. (laughs) It was amazing. (laughs) I just couldn't believe it. And this thought struck me. All those people who thought they were doing and saying what the lawyers wanted them to say were actually missing the point. They were missing what the lawyers were really looking for, which was honesty, an appropriate level of humility, openness to the argument. And I kept thinking of this section of Isaiah as I watched all this unfold, where the Israelites thought they were doing exactly what God wanted them to do. In the first part, they're like, we worship, we fast. You commanded us to fast. God, look at us. We're so awesome in our humbleness. Where are you? Why won't you answer our prayers? Why won't you do what we're asking you to do? 
And it just reminded me of the jurors, you know, who were thinking in their spirits, wait a minute, we're trying to say what you want us to say. Why won't you pick us? And the lawyers in the end were like, you know what? What you thought we were looking for was not what we were looking for. And God says that here to the people of Israel and also to us today. He says, you think that what I want is just rote religious activity, cold-hearted, calculated worship and, and fasting that's meant to buy my favor, that's meant to somehow earn my approval? I mean, do you really think that I want you to just say the right words, do the right religious things, and I won't notice how you're treating your workers, how you're treating your neighbors, how you're ignoring the poor or the hungry, God is saying to his people, you're missing the point. And I thought to myself about us, that this is a picture of us. This is a picture of me. I think I know what God wants. And I bet you do too. And it's usually stuff that doesn't cost us very much, that that keeps us safe, that somehow keeps our way of life intact. I mean, I figure it just boils down to this idea in my own head. I can live however I want. But if I come to church and if I pray before a meal and I go to a Bible study, then I'm good, right, God? And in, in his kindness to us and his mercy, God right here in his scriptures is saying to us, you know what? He's saying to me, Alice, If that's how you live, you will miss the point. You will spend your whole life aiming at the wrong thing. And in his kindness and in his mercy, God tells us here exactly what he wants us to aim at. God's plan has always been from the very beginning of this book until the very end. His plan has been to bless a people, a people that he can call his own so that through them and the way they live in the world, he can bless a broken world. That is what God was saying to the, to the Israelites here. He is saying to them, I blessed you. I saved you. I redeemed you out of Egypt. I took you to the promised land. I've called you my own. And I want you then to go and live that kind of way with your neighbors This has always been God's plan. It's all over the Bible and it is not complicated. But there is a problem and it's a very serious problem and it impacts every single one of us. God says here through the prophet Isaiah, if you pour yourself out in compassion and love for your neighbor, if you feed the hungry, If you clothe the naked, house the homeless, if you fight for justice, if you set oppressed people free, if you do that, then I will turn towards you and I will strengthen you and I will empower you and I will guide you and I will hear you when you call. It's all over the text in your bulletin. So if you take a look at your bulletin, I I wish I would have highlighted the if and the then, I'm sorry. But God says, if you do this, then I will do that. The problem is, and this is the problem that impacts every single one of us, you cannot do this. I cannot do it. And many of us have tried, 
And people have tried throughout history. None of us can live up to this chapter of Isaiah. Not a one. We really can't. Not perfectly, not every part. And it is because, as Martin Luther taught, and I think I brought this on a slide because it's in Latin. I liked it so much. Martin Luther said that mankind is, I think I have the slide. Yeah. Curvatus and sea, curved in on itself. We are men and women, human beings, curved in on ourselves. That means we're so self-centered, we don't even know we're self-centered. It's just how we naturally are. It's the water we swim in. It's the air we breathe. And C.S. Lewis, one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all times, He lived in Britain. He can't be that big of a sinner. But he said this. He said, I have, all they do is like drink tea and like it rains and they just stay inside. This is what he said. He said, um, I have never had a selfless thought. I have never had a selfless thought. And the truth of the matter is it's hopeless. You and I cannot on our own live the way God wants us to. That is just the flat out truth. And it's bad news. So what do we do? 90% of sermons, I read this the other day, 90% of sermons in American America can be boiled down to two words. Do you know what they are? Try harder. And I thought to myself, is that the primary message of the Christian faith? Is that the good news of the gospel that I'm devoting my life to? Try harder? I tell you what, when many of us read this kind of passage of scripture, that's the first reaction that appears in our souls. I'm going to just have to try harder. But listen to me here because this is so important. We cannot do this, and I don't care how hard you try. But Jesus did. Jesus did do this. He lived Isaiah 58 out every day of his life. Every if in this passage If you do this, if you do this, Jesus fulfilled. And he did it for the poor and the hungry and the oppressed, but he also did it for us. And if you don't believe me, take your bulletin home with you and read the Gospels with Isaiah 58 in one hand. And you will see that Jesus, all of his teachings, his stories, his parables, are almost all stories and teachings about loving God by loving our neighbor. And he not only taught it, but he did it all the way to the end. He did it. And Jesus died because we can't do it. And then, and this is the most amazing part of this, then his righteousness, his rightness with the father because of his perfect life is, is imputed to us. It's transferred into our account. And our failure, everything Isaiah, God through Isaiah points out about the Israelites is true about us. Our phoniness, our hypocritical fasting and worship, our showy religious behaviors, our arrogance, our self-centeredness, our refusal to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and house the homeless, our greed, you know, our turning our back on people who are victims of injustice, every ugly bit of it is imputed to Jesus, transferred to his account, and he paid the price for it all so that you and I don't have to. 
And this throughout history has been called the great exchange. It's a great exchange for us, not such a great exchange for Jesus. And because of this great exchange, you and I no longer live in an if-then relationship with God. That is the old covenant. When he uh, was at the Passover feast and poured the wine and said, this is my blood shed for you, and it's the blood of a new covenant. He was saying, I'm going to fulfill all the ifs, and my father will deliver all the thens through me to you. And if that doesn't drop us to our knees in gratitude and a fresh desire to live in a way that makes God smile, I don't know what will. Because you see now, because of Jesus, my relationship with God does not hinge on whether or not I can do everything he calls me to do perfectly. It is no longer about what I do for him. It is about what he has already done for me through Christ. And so I can look at a passage like this, Isaiah 58, and I cannot just allow myself to feel crushed by guilt or filled with fear because I know I can't do this or it doesn't cause me to go out and do a little bit in the hopes that that kind of earns God's favor and gets him off my case. Instead, I can read a text like this. I can be reminded of my need. I can feel overwhelmed by gratitude for God's plan to save us through his own sacrifice. And I can experience a wave of gratitude for what God has done for me through Christ. And that wave of gratitude causes me to ask the question, God, how can I demonstrate my thankfulness to you for what you've done for me? And Isaiah will tell me, God loves it, Alice when his people bless those around him. He especially loves it when his people bless those who are struggling and hungry and naked and homeless. God loves it when his people fight for the oppressed and seek justice for those without it. And I can hear that and I can say, I can start to live that way, not out of guilt or a desire to appear religious or an effort to please God or get him to love me, but just because I'm undone by grace. And that's the only motivator that will ever work. So read Isaiah 58, my friends, as we head toward the cross and know God's heart and know that in your own strength, you cannot do this. But know that Jesus did and that he offers you free his righteousness, his grace. And all you need to do is take it. And then you are set up to actually live out Isaiah 58 in in freedom and in confidence, not in your own goodness, but in the power of Christ and in the power of his goodness and grace that now lives in you. This is the beautiful message even of the gospel found in the Old Testament. So we're going to, I'm going to invite the band up. They're going to sing a song. You guys can come on up or maybe just stray. Sometimes the band leaves and goes out for coffee. Then I don't know where they are. And here's, I'm not going to have them start yet, but when they do sing this song, I want, I want you to do two things during this time.
I first of all want you to confess all the ways, or just a few of the ways, maybe you don't have enough time to get through all the ways, that you failed to live out this passage. I mean, you have the words right in front of you. Just tell God that you're sorry that you haven't lived this way. He knows. And then, would you thank Jesus for what he has done? Would you thank him that he is the doer of all the ifs? So his father freely gives all the thens to us as if we earned them. And would you just let gratitude fill you up while, while you hear this song, son, fill you up for what he has done for you and ask him out of that gratitude to give you the desire to show him how much you love him by loving your neighbor. Just spend some time with God and let these words wash over you. Amen.